If we asked you for your definition of success, what would you say? For us, it's simple. Success is unique to each and every one of us. Welcome to The Success Revolution, the podcast that's changing the way we talk and think about success. We're The Step Up Club. I'm Alice. And I'm Fenella. And we're on a mission to get every single one of you feeling successful, no matter what that success looks like to you. In today's episode, we speak to the author of the brilliant No Fucks Given self-help guide, Sarah Knight. You might well have read The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck, or her latest book, Calm the Fuck Down. We know you're going to love her irreverent humor, her deep, deep honesty about the pressures of working in the New York corporate rat race and the breakdown that she had as a result. But most importantly, the life-affirming decision she took to take her career somewhere a lot calmer, but no less successful as a result. Alice, Sarah was inspiring, she was strong, she was vibrant. What did you think about her definition of success? Well, as you'll hear pretty early on in the podcast, she had a significant pivot in her career from being a publisher in a big corporate publishing house in New York to now living in the Dominican Republic and being an author and watching the sunset. And actually, isn't the change that amazed me. We kind of knew that because we'd done our research, but it was how she engendered that change to suit herself. So she realized, I mean, she, she talked about being deeply practical and organized quite a few times in the conversation. And she organized her exit in such a way that she broke it down into a massive chart. So she worked out she needed $3,000 and that would equate to something like, it was like, $49 a day or something. And every morning she'd wake up and transfer the $49 from her current account to her savings account and do a big red cross or tick in the day's date and slowly worked her way towards the amount that she needed. And the process of doing that, I think, helped her transition from one career to another. And I think that was really interesting because sometimes we are overwhelmed by change and we can't break it down into small steps. And she did that really successfully. I also love that. I mean, I'm quite an impulsive person. I make decisions and once I have a decision, I just want to act on it. So the fact that she was able to be so controlled mm. is really interesting to me. And it gives me a lot of food for thought that there's a different way of doing things. I think that there's a real theme emerging and we've referred to this before, but there's a real theme emerging in our podcast guests between this kind of granularity of success. What do I do every day? Because we know it's the little things that we do every day that really contribute to happiness rather than these huge overarching goals but also with this huge or kind of greater purpose. And it's this duality of day-to-day -day success versus long-term purpose that I think Sarah exhibits really well. So she had a long-term purpose of being a, an author. Her day-to-day -day success was saving enough, enough money to do it. She now lives this incredible lifestyle in the Dominican Republic. And she has this overarching success around helping others, around using her life experiences around mental health and the expertise she's gained as, as a result to impart her wisdom, to write in a kind of funny, accessible way, but also this day-to-day -day success, which involves having a glass of wine with her friends for lunch every day and watching the sunset every day. And so she hooks these big overarching goals onto these day-to-day -day rituals. And I think that's a great lesson for all of us. 
Especially she never sets her alarm clock in the morning, which is something that neither of us could ever imagine something, doing. Something we aspire to one day she in says, 20 years' time. But actually, she sounded incredibly hardworking. So mm. she says she always knows exactly what she has to accomplish that day. And she sounds like she always accomplishes it. But if she wakes up at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock, it doesn't matter. She just shifts her day forward. So she doesn't have children. So that was interesting in the sense that she's a kind of middle-aged woman who has more freedom than us. But she isn't sloppy in that freedom. She's very productive and organised. And I think that's actually something to admire as well. Mm, definitely. We're really excited for you to listen to it. If you like what you hear um, in the podcast, please leave us a review and tell your friends to listen too. Today's episode is at Sarah's request, recorded in support of Planned Parenthood, a charity that provides high quality, affordable healthcare for women, men and young people around the world and is also the US's largest provider of sex education. Find out more about how to help at plannedparenthood.org. All the information is also in the show notes. Now on with the interview. If you don't know her, and you should, Sarah Knight is the author of the utterly brilliant and now best-selling No Fucks Given Guides. The publication of her first book in the series, The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck, proved to be a turning point in Sarah's career. Her newest book, Calm the Fuck Down, has just been published and is as on point and full of wisdom as usual. Sarah is often described as an anti-guru, probably because her approach to modern self-help is to swear a lot, draw lots of amusing diagrams and generally speak to the reader as if they were one of her friends. In short, these books help people navigate, with smiles on their faces, the frenetic world we all inhabit. Before becoming an author, Sarah had spent 15 years on the other side of her industry as a New York publisher. She climbed the corporate ladder and from the outside looking in, lived the Manhattan dream. Although I know you lived in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Both. The both. Okay, fine. <laughs> uh, the problem was she didn't feel successful, productive or happy. Sarah's career had left her struggling to get out of bed in the morning and ultimately it became unable for her to continue. Sarah quit her job and New York too and now lives with her husband and her two rescued stray cats in the Dominican Republic. It was these dramatic changes of tack in both Sarah's personal and professional lives that sowed the seeds for all of her subsequent success. Her no fucks given guides have helped millions of people to feel genuinely better about themselves and her TED talk, which everyone must watch, has had over 5 million views. Sarah is in London as part of her Calm the Fuck Down promotional tour, and we are absolutely thrilled to have her on the Success Revolution podcast. We are genuinely huge fans and could also do with some calming the fuck down advice. Sarah, welcome to the Success Revolution. Thank you so much for having me. That was a brilliant introduction. I feel so seen. (laughs) I know. We obviously focus our podcast all around success and it seems to us actually not dissimilarly to our careers that your definition of success has kind of gone through an evolution from the beginning of your career to now. Do you want to talk us through? Yeah, it certainly has. I think that I defined success solely as where I was advancing in my career and how much money I was making for many, 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 many years. And now I define success as being happy with my life. And it so happens that I've had this career shift and part of the fact that I'm now a writer, I work for myself, I don't commute on the subway, I don't report to bosses, is tied up in the idea of career. And I do happen to also be very successful at it. But the motivating force was how do I get happier because I am so unhappy 
And I think a lot of people define themselves by their careers. And I certainly was doing that for a long time. And I needed to just rip myself away from that focal point so that I could go on and do other things. Can you, out well. can you talk us through the process? Because I think there'll be a lot of people listening mm-hmm. who are in a corporate career and pursuing that corporate dream and climbing the ladder, but actually feeling as you did that it's just not right, but don't have maybe the courage to change or just don't know what to do. Can you talk us through... Did you go through an epiphany? What was the process? If a panic attack can be called an epiphany, (laughs) first I'd like to say that there are plenty of people for whom working a corporate job remains a dream come true and they're very happy about it and they like the structure and they enjoy all of the perks of the office building. And so that's great. I don't want anybody to feel that their way of life is being maligned. But for me, I was very good at it. I was very good at office diplomacy. You know, I was able to walk the walk and follow the rules. But I couldn't deny, especially after, like I said, I had a panic attack in my office building. I thought I'd been poisoned. I thought I was having an aneurysm. I didn't understand what was happening to me. My arms were going numb. Vision was going black. And that happened a few more times until I kind of got a handle on, okay, obviously I have some work to do. And then when I was able to, you know, recognize my own tendency toward anxiety and depression and panic, then I started looking at, okay, what is not even necessarily triggering? What's a catalyst for this? When do I feel the worst? Well, usually it has to do with having fought some battles in the workplace or having had to do things that I really didn't want to or enjoy doing that revolved around my job. And a lot of people say, well, you know, sometimes we just have to suck it up and we have to go do this. But I knew after thinking about it for quite some time and reaching some scary and uncomfortable truths that it was corporate culture that was the problem for me. I didn't want to admit that or didn't get it for a long time because I was so terrified of the idea of unplugging myself from this corporate environment that I had put so much time and effort into achieving, but also that provided a safety net of health insurance and a regular paycheck and reputational currency that I had built up over the course of 15 years. So it was a combination of the oh shit moment, which I talk about in my second book, Get Your Shit Together, of the panic attacks and the real mental strain and the concerted effort to look at my life and say, what is wrong? Why is it wrong? How can I change it? Reading your books is a brilliant kind of experience in hearing a true voice and someone who is incredibly self-aware and aware of other people's situations and feelings too. Did you feel self-aware at that time? What was the bridge between making the decision, having the panic attack epiphany and saying, right, it is the corporate world that is the trigger and I need to leave. And then arriving at this place where you're writing books to help other people manage their anxiety and problems. I don't think I was as self-aware as I am now, but also it was, like I said, this idea where I didn't want to admit that it was my job and my career that was contributing so much to my mental health issues because I didn't want to have to make the decision to leave behind that job and career. It was like I was self-sabotaging. Once I just had enough, and this I talk about what I call the power of negative thinking in one of my books, I got to the point where it wasn't tenable. I didn't want to get up and go to that job. And I also, when I came home every day, I was so upset and I just was becoming very unpleasant to be around, you know, and I felt bad about that in terms of my husband and my friends. So I got self-aware because I had to, I just didn't want to feel bad anymore. And 
it was the thing that put me over the edge. And so I am very sensitive to other people's struggles and do try very hard to talk to people through the books in a way that is authentic and that is approachable and that maybe you're all thinking in your own heads, but haven't had the ability to articulate, haven't had the courage to articulate, didn't feel like you had permission to articulate. And so if I'm doing it, then it just gives people, they say, oh, well, this lady, she's got books and they're on sale in the airport. Like, she must know what she's talking about. <laughs> were you quite conscious of being that voice of thinking, actually, I want to be able to use my experience to help other people? After the first book, the first book I wrote, I was feeling very inspired. It was timely. It started out as a parody of Marie Kondo's Tidying Up, Life Changing Magic of Tidying Up. And I was doing mental decluttering instead of physical decluttering. And it was supposed to be funny. And and we published it right away. And this whole period of my life was about a four month period between quitting my job and that book coming out oh gosh. and having written it in four weeks. And so can you just take us back for anyone who's listening mm. and is thinking, gosh, I would love to do that. You had this epiphany. You realize that the corporate culture is not mm-hmm. for you. You know that you need to do something different. How did you kind of redefine what you were going to do and then write a book so quickly? So I felt that the solution to my problems was that I needed to work for myself. And my skills are writing, editing, and because I've been... You've always been quite confident in your writing. Yes. That was something that I was always good at and enjoyed doing. And I think being an editor for so long, I also became a bit of a therapist, a bit of a cheerleader, a bit of a mom. So the skills that I had, I was pretty confident after having spoken to a number of colleagues of mine who'd gone out on their own. I got the sense that they were doing fine financially, that it was an adjustment, but I was going to be okay on that end. I knew that I had the hustle. I knew that I wouldn't just sit on my couch all day and pet my cat and not work. I was ready to do it. So once I had the epiphany that, okay, a lot of the problems that I'm having stem from the fact that I just can't stand working in a corporation and that I really want and need to work for myself. Then I made a plan and, you know, I'm a planner and I didn't just walk into my boss's office one day on a whim and say, that's it, I'm out. And if somebody has the wherewithal to do that, more power to them. I wanted to know that I was going to be okay, that I wasn't sending my husband and I into dire financial straits by doing this. And so basically I decided how much are my expenses for one month? I'm going to need three months in the bank to feel like I have a safety net. Okay, how much is that? All right, how fast can I accumulate that? And the answer was not three months or six months, but I felt like I could do it in a year. And I broke that amount of money down by day-to-day savings plan. And every day, it was $10,000 was what I was trying to save. And that's $27.40 a day. And so, or 43 cents, I think. And so I'd get up, I would go on my banking app on my phone. I would transfer $27.43 from my checking to my savings account, make my coffee, drink my coffee, color in a little square on my chart on the fridge, and go about my day. And for the first few days and few weeks, well, we have a get your shit together journal now. So it both gave me a task to accomplish toward my eventual goal, but it also helped me get emotionally and psychologically prepared for leaving my job because every day I was looking at those squares and they were filling up and it was getting redder and redder. And, And 12 months is a long time, but eventually you're at like month 11 and a half and you're like, wow, I'm quitting my job in two weeks. Okay. And during that time also my husband was building me a freelance website. So we were working on that. We were doing business cards, although I don't think I've ever given those business cards to anyone because nobody does that anymore, at least in New York. But you know, I was doing all kinds of things that I knew I would have to do so that I could hit the ground running. And 
that is the very definition of working for yourself and being entrepreneurial. So I think it was a really easy fit in terms of that kind of prep work. I was really suited to it. So the plan was to be a freelance editor. Yes. And then you had the idea. Yeah, I lined up so many jobs, in fact, in advance because I was wanted to make sure that I had enough work, that when I had the idea for my book, I think I left the business around June 1st of 2015. I had the idea a couple weeks later. I had written a proposal and got an agent who was a woman I'd known through the business who had said to me, if you ever write something, I want to see it because I think you have a book in you. She liked it, whatever. So around the very beginning of August, she wanted to send it out because otherwise you lose everybody in New York publishing for a month. And I was like, oh, okay. So that all happened really quickly. And then there was an auction and a bunch of publishers bid on the book and one of them won it. And then they wanted it done in four weeks so that it could come out in January. And I was like, oh, well, I have these other jobs that I've lined up. And okay, I guess I'm going to be working really, really, really hard for the next few months, including I was ghostwriting someone else's book. So I had editing jobs. I had this ghostwriting job. I had my book that was on a very tight deadline and I was now under a lot of pressure. And there was a point where I had to tell someone who had been waiting on my calendar. I said, I'm really sorry, but I can no longer work on your book. And she was furious. She really did not take it well. She said, I waited for you. You know, I told you why I wanted you to do it. You had the experience. You've read the manuscript. And I just said, something's got to give. And the circumstances have changed. And my fiduciary duty is to my publisher to deliver them a product in the timeline that they need it on. I have to cut bait in some way and I'm really sorry, but I will recommend you to somebody really good. And that was... That was your power of saying no. But it was also terrifying. Yeah. And she made me feel really bad about it. And so I just had to get over it. I had to not let that stop me from doing what I needed to do for me and setting boundaries. Two questions that kind of roll into one. Why do you think your books have really resonated with people today? And two, I was slightly offended on your behalf that you're called an anti-guru because I think you're just a guru-guru. Just because you swear (laughs) and say fuck doesn't mean that you're an anti-anything. In fact, I would say the opposite. I think you are totally on point, like we said in the introduction, in terms of your tone and your understanding of what people need in terms of self-help. It isn't to be talked at like you know, in kind of namby-pamby, kind of soft and gentle ways, but to have this kind of straight-talking, humorous approach. Why do you think they've worked, and and how do you feel about the anti-guru status? Well, I don't mind being called an anti-guru because because I think it sets me apart from the crowd. So it's a way that I can differentiate myself, which is always good. And I do think that the reason it was laid upon me, I believe it was by the Observer, here in the UK was because the tone... And the humor and everything are so much different than what's out there. So I choose to think of it in a positive way. But I think the books are working because there is an authenticity to the way that they're written. Because it's just me. It's just me giving advice, taking my bossy, perfectionist, type A, anxious nature and figuring out my own problems and then figuring out how to tell other people how to do it too. And it's a very natural fit for me. That said, I never read self-help. I didn't edit self-help when I worked. I edited a wide variety of books, but not self-help. And I always was healthily skeptical of it and the people who peddled it just because I felt like it seemed always a little bit exploitative. And I was always so self-reliant that I was like, I don't need somebody to tell me how to organize my software, for example. I think Marie Kondo is a genius in terms of physical decluttering. And if she can get more people to do it, I wish she could get a lot of people I know to do it. 
But I do think that like some readers and the reason the self-help industry and genre has been around for so long, like they do want to be led around by the nose. They are looking for somebody to sort of point them in the right direction and do it for them. And I guess I'm doing that. I have to admit I'm doing that, but I guess I'm doing it a little more bluntly and I can sleep at night knowing that I don't feel like I'm taking advantage of anybody's problems or exploiting them. I feel like I'm offering them the help that I wish I had when I was having those same problems. So it's weird for me to be in the world as a whole. The first book was supposed to be a humor book and that is not the shelf they are on anymore. So it's a big responsibility taking people's problems and and sort of giving them, yeah, we really feel it when we're giving people career advice. Mm. How have you coped with that shift and how does that kind of fit in with where you see your future and how you're defining success now. Well, just to bring it back to, you know, your original question about how do I define success? And, you know, I really think for me, it was happiness. I was like, this is how I'm going to succeed is by changing my mindset and learning to enjoy my life and not be so panicked and freaked out all the time. And so when I advise people, I'm very quick to say, first of all, I'm not a doctor. I want to make sure if you have problems that really require medical intervention and therapeutic intervention, you go and talk to somebody who is licensed to do that because I am not. But I also say that what I'm telling you to do should be based upon your own barometer of happiness, success, ambition, whatever it is. I'm not telling people to live exactly like me. I'm showing you how you can if the way I'm doing it looks good to you. So first of all, they need to read our book yes. to be able to define their success. And then yes. they can read your book yes. to be able to get there. To get there. Okay. Exactly. Perfect. Cool. They're bookends. <laughs> so I'm very cognizant of the fact now that people come to me with extremely distressing, serious problems. And I get a lot of, how you do, know. How do people normally contact you? Oh, all different ways. Okay. And I have to tell people, I read every email I get. The ones that come through my website. I cannot always respond to them, but I do read them. If you send me an Instagram DM, I might not see it. If you send me a Facebook message and we're not Facebook friends, I'm probably not going to see it. I do have the No Fucks Given Guides Facebook group and page and that stuff I see. But it's funny how people will reach out in, in all these different ways. And sometimes three weeks later, I go through all my Instagram DMs and somebody's asked for like an interview. And I'm like, well, just go to my publicist. Like, I don't, <laughs> I didn't see this because it's just too much. It's awesome that there are that many people who are reaching out to me, but I don't see all of the, the DMs. I should probably put a little thing like, don't check my yeah. DMs or something. You know, like, I, like I'm a really important like rapper. So people reach out to me with really, you know, deep, dark stuff they're worried about. And I have to say, look, the point of my books, most especially Calm the Fuck Down, the new one, is that these are techniques and tips and advice that I believe can be applied universally across a spectrum of problems. It doesn't matter whether I think your problem is serious. If you think your problem is serious, you should be able to use these techniques to work your way through it. And somebody else who's having a different problem should be able to use the same techniques. So I always say to people, not a doctor, if you're feeling really depressed or like you need medical help, please go get it. And otherwise, I hope that you will know that the things that are happening to you that you perceive as really, really bad, there are ways to make them less bad. And that is what the books are full of. So I'm not trying to um, minimize anybody's problems or concerns. And I also think, you know, I do try to make it light in the books. Do do you define your success also in helping other people? Because presumably you, you haven't just written one book and are living on the Dominican Republic with your cats and feeling happy. Like, you obviously still have a pursuit of a a certain other 
area of success because you keep writing is it to help people is it to help yourself it's both each book has given me something it's given me something to work out on my own I think get your shit together was the one that I was sort of born to write because I'm very deeply organized and I think that one I didn't require too much help in terms of what most people come to that book for. But I discovered while I was writing it that sometimes you can be too too overwhelmed and to take on too many tasks and keep too many balls in the air. And so I am on the, the end of the spectrum where my shit looks like it's really together, but I needed help managing the overwhelm. You Do You is really cathartic and fun to write because it's really all about just accepting yourself for who you are and not letting other people kind of put flaws on you that don't exist. But Calm the Fuck Down... I wrote because I really needed it and I'm thrilled that it's doing so well and that so many people are reading it and it does make me very happy that I'm, you know, as advertised from the first book, changing lives, mm. you know, it's life changing, it's information. It's all common sense, I think. But if I can deliver it in a, if a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, then great. I'm married. Met my children. That's literally all they're singing at the moment. (laughs) Right, because the new the new ones out. So yeah, I do. I feel like I have succeeded. I've also, I mean, it's a little bit self centered of me, but I feel like I've succeeded in proving that my opinions are valid. Like there were times when. I tell a story in You Do You about, you know, I wanted to acquire some books. My taste was sort of dark and edgy. And at some point, my boss was giving me a little bit of a hard time about it. And he said, you know, you really have to think about the audience and how you're going to reach them. And, and the implication was, you know, nobody else wants to read these books. And I was like, there have to be people like me out there. And I feel that same way with the advice I give. I'm like, there have to be people who want to hear it like it is. There have to be people who don't want to just be patted on the head and soothed and said everything will be okay, but who actually want to be heard and who want somebody to say, yeah, you know, everything is shit. You are right. Let's work on it, you know? So that to me has been really satisfying because I feel like I, I'm like, see, I thought all of this stuff, you know, and I didn't know it was okay to say, and I didn't... Do you think that was part of what you found difficult about corporate life? Oh, yes. I was always the person who would kind of almost accidentally unbidden make a comment in a meeting just because I couldn't help myself. And then people would turn around and just be like, wow, she said that, you know, because I just felt like I constantly felt like the emperor had no clothes and I was trying to sound the alarm. And now I feel validated in that aspect of my personality. Can you give us your top tip from Calm the Fuck Down so that we can give our listeners a taster of what they have in store? We've both read it and love it. What would you say was your top, I don't know, one or two tips? Well, I would say the central tip that informs the whole book is to learn to ask yourself the one question to rule them all, and that is, can I control it? And everything about this book is broken down into things you can control and things you can't. Accepting the things that you can't control and then using your remaining time, energy, and money to affect things that you can. So... Ask yourself when you're in a moment of panic, if a crisis is looming, if something bad just happened, say the one question to rule them all. Can I control it? And the answer to that question will inform your strategy for getting out of it, solving it, mitigating it, making it slightly less bad, or just surviving it. And the book goes into detail on a lot of that stuff. And then the other thing that if we have a little bit of time... I'll try to explain concisely because it's something that people have written to me and said, this is changing my life. It's this concept of tonight you and tomorrow you. So I, due to my anxiety, have had really a lot of trouble sleeping in my life. And some people, their brains are just worrying and they just can't. They're thinking about their to-do list for tomorrow. They're thinking about what happens if my grandmother dies tomorrow. I'm on watch. You know, there's all these things that could be happening in our lives and make you not be able to sleep. 
And one night my husband looked at me and he said, you know, tonight Sarah's job is to fall asleep. And tomorrow Sarah can deal with that shit tomorrow. And it was like this light went on. I did not invent this concept. He invented this concept. I have just used it to my own benefit ever since. And it's all about people say, oh, that's just, that's so facile. Like that's not really going to help. Like, what do you think? I haven't tried that. Well, maybe you haven't. If you're somebody who's really goal and task oriented, the idea of giving yourself the job of falling asleep and making it an active thing that you're like, this is number one on my to-do list and I need to cross this off is really helpful. And the other thing is to remember that you've always trusted tomorrow you to take care of this stuff. Has there ever been a day when you didn't do, you know, like if you're like, oh, I hope I remember to go get the car washed. Did you forget to get the car washed last time? Like, no, you're going to remember it. Why are you, you know, why are you spinning about this overnight? So when I write about in the book, anxiety and the flip side of anxiety being focus, you know, really being able to narrow in and stop overthinking things and do one at a time tonight, you and tomorrow you has been a really, really useful tip for me. And also for a lot of people who've already read the book, who've written in and said, you've given me the gift of sleep. So, you know, That's an amazing gift. I think one that we could definitely do. Make sure that you set tomorrow you up for success by letting tonight you go to sleep. I was just going to ask if you take your own advice, but you've literally just answered like, that. Yes. <laughs> I feel like anxiety is a very, I mean, obviously there's always been anxiety. I had anxiety even in my twenties, but it's a very current issue for so many people. So many people who come to our courses, you talked about the overwhelming number of DMs that you receive yeah. and the emails that you receive, <clears throat> just the information that we're trying <clears throat> to cope with then, let alone any other responsibilities that right. we have. Well, I think it's the world is garbage fire. And so that's getting worse and worse every day. Technology enables us to know about it every second of every day. We're learning new bad things that are happening. And also, I think the stigma is being released a little bit about mental health issues, including anxiety and depression. I think that my aunt was just as anxious in her 40s, 30s, 20s as I was, but there was no way to talk about it. So now I think a lot of people are admitting to their anxiety and talking about it. And so we all feel sort of collectively more anxious because we feel like it's okay to start talking about it and the floodgates are opening. So there's this combination of outside forces and inside forces that are kind of bubbling up to the surface. And I have to say, maybe I just have my finger on the pulse, but this book is coming out <laughs> at a useful time. I wish that people were not so anxious, but since they are, it is a good time for this book to come out. Obviously, you didn't have a plan for four books when you wrote the first book, but do you have a kind of a vision of what the guides are going to look like? Is there a kind of range of topics that you want to cover? Is there something else you want to do with them? So I do have a contract already for a fifth book. So I'm working on that. I've done a little bit of it and I really need to get going when I'm done with this tour. And I don't have a title to share yet, but it's going to be a manual for saying no. It's going to be a very clear directive on how to set those boundaries and what to say. Because a lot of people read the first book and they said, okay, get it. You're telling me why I should set boundaries and why it's okay for me to do that. But how do I say the words? How do I turn down a job offer? You know, how do I decline an invitation? How do I say I don't want to go on this family trip? How, how, how? And so I said, well, I mean, let's do something really deeply prescriptive and practical about saying no. So that is the next topic that I am tackling in a very granular way. And I'm pretty excited about it. And then after that, I have a book of essays under contract actually. So I really want to publish some fun essays. I want to talk about mental health. I want to talk about mistakes I've made. I want to talk about 
the world and do it in an edgy and conversational and authentic way in the same way the no fucks given guides are, but I would like it to be, you know, really essayistic and not so much the kind of bulleted practical advice type format I've been doing so far. So when it strikes me, I'm sort of imagining you writing your books and what your kind of day to day. I wouldn't be wearing a sweater. You look really glamorous. And a lot of people we've interviewed through the course of the podcast have had a kind of overarching definition of success, Mm -hmm. which goes to your, you know, I just want to be happy, Mm -hmm. but also something that's more granular. So every day I need to feel challenged or every day I need to feel calm or I have these three things that I wake up in the morning and I know I'm going to do before I go to bed and I know it's been a successful day. Do you have something like that in the way you structure your time? I mean, I'm very goal and task oriented. So even moving to a tropical island and working all day in my sarong and watching my palm tree flutter has not changed that. So when I have an assignment, whether it's a book or a magazine assignment or I need to get out a newsletter or whatever it is I'm doing, I'm pretty focused on I know what I need to get done and the amount of time I have to do it in. So if I have to be up and working by 10 a.m., I know I have to be up and working by 10 a.m. to fit it all in. But the yang to that ying is that my life now is geared toward I don't set an alarm. I'm a terrible morning person. I hate getting up in the morning. I hate being woken. So I don't. I wake up when I wake up. I wake up when I've had enough sleep. And that could be 9 a.m. or it could be 11. And I know that whatever I have to accomplish that day will also have allowed me to get a good night's sleep and will allow me to have dinner with my husband and will allow me to go out for sunset drinks with friends. Like I've managed to create this life where I can still be the me that is goal-oriented and ambitious and successful, but I'm doing it on my own schedule and my own terms. So to me, it's a successful day when I get the things done that I want to do, which includes seeing the sunset or doing like lunch out in the town and having a rosé midday. Those are all mini successes that I am. Sound amazing. Actually, I'm using <laughs> cold day in London. I'm thinking maybe we should move stuff up. No, no. Like <laughs> well, thank you so much, Sarah. That was enlightening and interesting and great fun too. We're thrilled you're on the podcast. Actually, while you were talking, I was thinking you're very British in the way that you talk and write you know we have lots of women who are I say more than American maybe who feel free enough to be outspoken in the way that they approach plus we love to swear plus we love to swear there you go thank you for coming here (laughs) and sharing your time with us you are very fucking welcome thank you for having me this is (laughs) great if you enjoyed the podcast and it sparked some thoughts about your success please don't forget to leave us a review wherever you're listening again all the information is in the show notes Don't forget to head to stepupclub.co to find out more about how Step Up School could help you achieve your career dreams. See you next week, same time, same place. We've got plenty of incredible women, each with her own definition of success up our sleeves.